0: The Drum
1: Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 17 of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I hope you all had a good holiday season. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you for your patience while we took a couple weeks off to regroup. I have um, a bunch of new ideas coming for the show, maybe for season three, but we're going to wrap up season two with a couple special episodes. And this week, I've got my good friend Paul Wells on. Paul Wells is a New York City-based jazz drummer and educator. He teaches over at Juilliard. He tours internationally with Kurt Steigers. He's a member of Vince Giordano's Nighthawks. He's also performed and rec- or recorded with Deborah Harry, Joe Williams, the Van Gogh Jazz Orchestra, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, and Kristen Chenoweth. But most importantly, Paul is a Neil Peart Freak. So this week we are going to dig in on it's. It's supposed to have been six. But we added a couple extra six plus of Paul's favorite tracks from the middle period of Neil Peart's tenure with the Van Rush. Um, we've got a lot of music to listen to. We've got a lot of gear to talk about, and let's just get to it. So see you at the end. Uh, Paul, well, thanks for coming on to the show. I was trying to think back when we first met. It must have been two thousand six or seven. I don't think you had moved you, to New York City full time yet. I think you're in no. Well,
0: I had lived in New York previous, but had had been in Pennsylvania at that time that we met, and moved back to New York in 2012.
1: Okay, and I think you were either just about to hit hit the road with Deborah Harry, or just come off the road with Deborah Harry. I can't quite
0: remember. Yeah, that tour was uh, 2007. That was like the fall of 2007 that I toured with her.
1: Okay, right on. So I want to start with kind of the transition from being a prog drummer or whatever you want to call it, a rock drummer, to then pursuing a a jazz, a career in jazz. Like, how does that transition happen?
0: I mean, really, it's all about, for me, I mean, I'm just a fan of all of these different kinds of music. And, and I, I, you know, when I, when I get into something, I go pretty hard. And I, you know, I just want to learn everything I can about a style or a genre or a certain player or, you know, any number of things. So it really comes from just love of those, all of those styles of music. And I had actually started as a drummer all through the time growing up in Pittsburgh. I just, I didn't think about those genres as being something that were you know you could only do one i i just was into all kinds of things and wanted to play all kinds of things and in a smaller music scene like pittsburgh you could you could do that and there are still drummers there like our buddy david throckmorton who plays all kinds of stuff from bebop to pretty slamming rock um in new york there's less opportunity to do so but um I went to school for jazz. I went to Wayne Patterson in outside of New York City and had been a jazz drummer in New York all through the 90s and then really got the bug. Actually, it was a Rush concert that really kind of made me. It was in June of 97, uh going to see them. It was on the test for Echo Tour. It was the 6th concert on that tour that I saw of them. Um, (laughs) and, and something, about yeah, I know something about that show. I was very, very close to the stage and something about the atmosphere and seeing Neil play and something, it just hit me like, I need to do this. I need, I need to, I need to be, I need to play rock right now, basically. Mm. And, you know, I had done it a lot in high school and before that, but I, I then really kind of switched gears and started, you know, shedding and looking for opportunities to play that kind of music on a professional level. And, um, so that's what led to me being in the band spiraling, uh, for a number of years, which led to the Debbie Harry gig, but it was after that, that I kind of made the transition back into being a full-time jazz drummer. And I still occasionally get called to do some backbeat stuff, but mostly it's, uh, it's, it's jazz but it's really all about just total love for those styles
1: so i've had some some friends of mine mention like to be a jazz musician it's a lifestyle choice like you can't dabble in in being a jazz musician
0: i wouldn't say it's a lifestyle it's a it's a life pursuit for sure um but you know lifestyle is whatever you choose your lifestyle to be it's you know that's that's what it is. I don't think you need to subscribe to any sort of um, same thing with rock. I mean, you know, actually Neil is a, a great example of somebody who was a uh, you know a rock musician, but did not leave a lead a, a rock and roll lifestyle at all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but yeah, I, I but I know what you mean. I mean, the, the, it it is a full time, a lifetime pursuit, and I do think that in a way spending 8 years or so or whatever it was focusing primarily on rock i was still playing jazz gigs but it wasn't really my focus and it wasn't something that i spent a lot of time practicing and i do think my playing suffered for that my jazz playing but and i'm i'm still in some ways playing catch up and it's probably hopefully stuff that no one but me would really notice but it's you know there's certain technical things that i feel like if i'd you know continued on that path from college on without that detour maybe i'd be stronger but i also learned a lot of things musically about groove and tempo and time and things like that that um i don't think i i don't know that those things that i learned from being a rock player that i think have helped my jazz playing considerably that maybe i wouldn't have gotten any other way
1: so you mentioned you saw Rush six times on that tour, so that must qualify on that tour. As, as a super fan. So what is your I think so. connection to Rush and Neil Peart? How did that come mm. about?
0: Well, um, I had heard about him or i had sort of been aware somehow uh, as a kid. I think I, I had seen him. My, my dad got uh, MTV around 1982 or 83. And I just basically planted myself in front of the TV and did nothing but watch MTV for a number of years, and um, you know, so I know all of that music—pop, rock, and even the, the tiny little bit of actually. God, there wasn't really any hip hop other than "Walk This Way" at that point on MTV, but all of that music that was that was playing at the time, I know, and I remember Rush. I remember this guy sitting behind a giant red drum set and sort of thinking like, Oh, that's intriguing. Um, when I was, uh, 10, I start, I started taking my first drum lessons at Swiss Film music store in Pittsburgh. Um, and I remember at my very first drum lesson, um, or maybe it was when I signed up, I, um, my father took me there and he bought me my first copy of modern drummer ever. And it happened to be, and I, I have, I have an example here. I have a prop. It happened to be the April 1984 issue Wow! with, with our buddy on the cover here. And this is like, you know, Oh, okay. This is pretty cool. This guy's got a lot of drums. This looks like pretty fun stuff. <laughs> and there's some amazing photos in here of, of Neil playing the, the giant kid. And, um, but I still hadn't really heard them. Actually, that, the, that issue I just showed you is a, a one I bought on eBay somewhat more recently. I actually still have the exact oh, copy wow. that I, <laughs> that I got in February or March of 80, 84. And as you can see, it's just completely in pieces, but I do still have my, you know, yeah. Did you cut the I photos out? It. That's what I did. I cut. The I photos didn't. Out. No, I didn't. But I used to take this in my backpack to school every day. And in these in these days, Modern Drummer was just stapled together. It wasn't bound, so the pages would just fall apart and fall out. So I, <laughs> I still have all the pages. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but this is the original copy that my dad bought me in '84. And I still hadn't heard them really or paid attention. So I, um, but what, what happened was, uh, in the summer of 86, I went to a a jazz camp for the first time. I went to the international music camp. Um, my parents uh, were from Winnipeg and we would go to Winnipeg every summer to visit. And on the Manitoba, North Dakota border was, um, uh, uh, the international music camp was held every summer, and I went for the the jazz week. And the teacher, the f- I went to that um, for a number of years. It was actually a great experience. It was really my first experience learning about jazz. But also the uh, the drum teacher the first year, and I forget the guy's name the first year. This the second. And third year was a great teacher named Scott Prebis. And then Dave Mancini taught me there um, later. But the first year was a different guy. And I forget his name, but he took all the drum students outside. It was a beautiful like July day. Sat us in sort of a semicircle. And he sat in front of us with a, with a boombox. And he played us a tape of uh, Exit Stage Left. And he played us Neil's drum solo on YYZ. And that was the first time I had heard anything like that it completely blew my mind it was just like the coolest thing i'd ever heard and that was the first time i heard him and i very quickly started buying the records as soon as i got home and yeah so that was that that was where i first got into them and um i first saw them the first concert i went to was with our our mutual friend the great bassist paul thompson and, um, we went to see them at the civic arena in Pittsburgh in uh, December, I think it was December 16th, 1987 on the hold your fire tour. And we were just both completely freaking out. You know? <laughs>
1: uh-huh. So, I mean, you when listening? did you,
0: did you see them? When did
1: you first see them? I never saw them. I didn't you never get saw into them. them. Huh? It was, it was Presto was the record that came out when I first started playing drums
0: yeah it was was the same thing
1: mtv didn't know what it was but the drums were so loud and present and it it related to because i was a big fan of yes owner of a lonely heart and that record kind of reminded me of that sound so yeah i kind of just found them via mtv like a lot of us in our generation just a few years later but never got to see them
0: that's why those bands put videos on MTV. I mean, that's exact, that's like the process in action, you know, (laughs) successfully working like, Oh, who's this? I like this. I'll buy this record. I'll go see this band.
1: Yeah. That's how it worked. So did you go through a a phase of trying to set up as many drums as possible to do the rush thing?
0: Dude, I did that just recently, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I, I did. I mean, I got, you know, not, I guess not long after that summer camp, Um, I got my first, I I had a Remo PTS kit before that, a little five piece, um, not a particularly good drum set. But um, soon after that camp, um, my mom actually bought me a a Pearl Export nine piece kit, wine red. Um, And yeah, so that was like, you know, yeah, four rack toms, two floor toms, two bass drums, snare drum. Um, Yeah. And I definitely, you know, I mean, I, I just set it up and I was trying to learn to play those parts mm-hmm. and trying to learn to play, you know, play the parts from Moving Pictures and uh Hemispheres and all that all, all that stuff and and um and yeah, that that continued through high school. I would go through phases though. I would like for a while I'd be into Neil and I'd set up like him, but then maybe like a month later I would be listening to Steve Gadd or Dave Weckl and I'd want to set up like those guys. But sometimes I remember doing I remember playing on like Having my drum set up like Steve Gadd, same kit, um, but having the 10, 12 and then the 13 and the 14 as floor toms and like, you know, a ride and a couple of crashes. But I remember playing Rush stuff on that setup too and trying to adapt it for that. So yeah, I, I did every imaginable variation.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like Rush, for some, some folks, they're a transitional bad band to get into more quote unquote complicated music and then yeah. a lot of times it does lead to jazz which ironically is a stripped down more stripped down approach to the instrument in a lot of ways um but <laughs> you seem to have kept this the passion the same passion for neil the whole time it wasn't like a gateway for you yeah. like what well, is he was, bringing to you
0: uh yeah I, I mean all through college when i was just completely you know in depth studying jazz studying with john Riley at the time and and learning you know uh thad jones mel lewis big band charts and just getting really deep into that i was still going to see rush i was still buying every album the day it came out i was still going to see them every chance i could i just i've never really been able to shake it i just love the stuff and and it grew from being just about neil and about the drumming into being, you know, loving Getty and Alex too, and and loving the songwriting and the arranging, and in a way, that's more what I'm into now. Um, I, I think that they are heavily underrated as songwriters. I think that Getty, in particular, has written some absolutely gorgeous melodies, wonderful vocal melodies, um, the arranging, the different styles of production and arranging that they've gone through from like the eighties with lots of synths and lots of like very orchestral sort of um uh i mean literally orchestral because they did record with an orchestra on a number of occasions uh to very stripped down approaches at different times and i i just love all of it and and i think it's just fantastic music i think alex is an amazing guitar player again really underrated plays some beautiful solos and um and there's just a lot of energy there's an energy that i love it's um it's just a lot of forward motion very punchy uh to use the parlance of the times it really pops you know (laughs) everything Mm -hmm. is really like it just it just has a lot of um just yeah just energy I, i i run to rush my my favorite uh running playlist. I I run just about every other day and it's usually to rush. It's usually to a playlist of rush. Um, so, you know, that's, it's still very much in my life.
1: Is there any direct or indirect influences that you hear from Neil on your jazz gigs?
0: (laughs) Not really nothing. I mean, very vaguely. I mean, just, you know, Uh, 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 Well, certainly like um, attention to detail, attention to sound. Um, I'll get into this maybe later, but, you know, if you listen to these records, he actually tunes his toms very, very, very high. There's actually like, some of his drums are almost kind of tuned in like a bebop range. So there is maybe a sort of a connection sound-wise um, but w- where it actually comes in, and I was actually just discussing this with a student yesterday, because I was talking to my student uh, about this podcast, about doing this this talk about Neil. And he said, oh, we should, we should do a lesson talking about Neil. And I said, well, I don't know how relevant it is to you studying jazz here at Juilliard. But actually, you know, let's talk about orchestration. Let's talk about like, You know, and I played him a couple of tunes where Neil is very clearly coming up with like, okay, this is a part for this verse, and then here's the chorus. Now we get to verse two, it's going to be similar to verse one, but more. And here's chorus two, it's going to be similar to chorus one, but a little bigger or a little different orchestration of the same part that kind of thing. And then I played him some big band music. I played him some um, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra playing Jim McNeely music. And I showed him how when I play those tunes, when I get to sub with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, that I take a similar approach in a way of, okay, here's the A, I'm going to do it on this symbol and it's going to be sparse. And then we get to the B section, I'm going to change the texture, and I'm going to give it a little more. And then we go back to A, but it's not the same energy as the first day. So it's going to be like this, but a little more, it's the same general Mm -hmm. approach. It's, it's, you know, obviously a different aesthetic, but the approach is the same. And maybe Neil was the first place that I really noticed people doing it. He's certainly not the first or last person to play drums like that, but it may very likely be the first time that I paid attention to anybody doing that. So that might be the connection
1: well let's dive into some tracks so we're focusing on the yeah. the what would you call it the middle era of russia's catalog
0: i guess so i mean yeah may, maybe the the i mean you have like the very early stuff you have like you know uh Farewell kings hemispheres the sort of progier stuff uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's. I think of this as sort of an underlooked period. But we are going to start with Exit Stage Left, because um, I want to talk about the drum solo. And how, I mean, that was the first thing that I heard. And I still think it's just a fantastic drum solo in many, many ways. So let's check that out. All right. You know, one of the things I love about this and and maybe this is coming from my my jazz musician ears, but um, he he didn't do this a lot over the course of the the various tours where the solo comes in the middle of a tune, you know, and is book-end book-ended by the beginning and the, the you know, the first half and the second half of the tune. And I feel like he's playing the tune through the whole solo. And what I mean by that is the whole thing is in tempo the whole thing is in time it's in the same tempo as the tune the only part where he deviates is when he starts doing the thing i don't know what people call it now that we used to call them quads for some reason when you do right left with the hands right left with the feet you know what i'm talking about at the end oh yeah yeah now he starts that out he he starts it out at a slower tempo but he eventually brings it up to speed where it's the same tempo as the tune. And he, I feel like what he's playing is all in the same. If I, if this is really maybe going to be a stretch to refer to it as a clave, but it's all within the clave of the tune, it's all in the same sort of rhythmic language which is basically just 16th notes, right? It's mm-hmm. just this, it's a tune with a pulse and a lot of 16th notes and sort of like, you know, some syncopated 16th notes, but that's what the whole solo is. And I love that it maintains the energy of the tunes of the whole thing and sort of brings it to another level. Um, I just think that's super cool. Um, and to talk about this solo, to get really in the weeds about it, um, I I have a lot of um, bootlegs of Rush, Mm. and particularly of this tour because I think that this tour was probably, for me personally, um, even though I mentioned I love the records that come after this so much, I think in a way maybe live this was maybe their, their zenith as a live band, and particularly the end of this tour. They were playing so unbelievably well on this tour um and what's interesting is so i have i have the dates this tour um the moving pictures tour um started sorry i, I should have this handy it started on um february 20th uh, 1981 and it ended on july 5th 1981 mm-hmm. so not that long a tour by their standards um so This solo, so they recorded, um, a bunch of shows in Canada for the exit stage left record, which this, the exit stage left is mostly made up of stuff from the moving pictures tour. And they recorded Toronto and Montreal shows in the end of March of 81. So that's towards the beginning of the tour. And then they also recorded Vancouver and Edmonton at the end of June. So towards the end of the tour, um, And most of this solo is taken from, it's either the Vancouver or Edmonton show. It's later in the tour. But what I think very few people know is that there is an edit in this solo. Hmm. There's at least one. I actually hear a second one, but I won't get into that. At 4 minutes, 57 seconds. So I think the entire solo is from later in the tour until you get to 4 minutes, 57 seconds. That's right after he plays the stuff on the gong bass drums. There's an edit, and suddenly we are in the March 25th show from Toronto, Mm. and that's what finishes the solo, because the reason I know this is there is a bootleg of the entire um, March 25th show from Toronto. You can probably find it on YouTube. Most of these bootlegs are on YouTube now. It used to be that you'd have to find them at record shows, or you'd trade amongst other collectors on the internet, but, um, I have a bootleg and you can probably find it. Listeners can probably find it out there, um, from March 25th and you will hear it's a completely different solo, but then at a certain point, suddenly it's the exit stage left solo. At the, at, near the end. <laughs> yeah. So, and that may be because they had a problem with the Vancouver or Edmonton show. Maybe something happened and that, you know, the tape ran out or any number of technical problems maybe that led to them not being able to use the end of that solo and had to splice in a different solo. Or maybe they just like the end of that solo better. I don't know. Um, but uh, the, the, the the reason I bring this up is because the solo really changed over the course of that tour. And if you want to hear... So on this version towards the end of the tour, he starts out with all this sort of quasi-rudimental snare drum stuff, right? And then he goes into the hi-hat, like you know the, the Bernard Purdy sort of pssst, pssst, mm-hmm. pssst stuff. And that's how he was playing the solo towards the end of the tour. If you listen to to recordings from the beginning of the tour. Um, He started the solo out in a completely different way, and it's really interesting to compare those. And there is actually an official release now. I happen to have it here. The Moving Pictures box set that came out this year has, they, they released with this box set the entire... Show from a different one of the different shows in Toronto, I think it they they released um most one of the March shows in Toronto Ooh. the complete the complete you know it's sort of an exit like an alternate exit stage left so you can hear now you can check this out on Spotify or you can buy the lP or the c d or whatever you know however you get your music, but you can check out an earlier solo from that tour and you can hear how different it is and how much the solo evolved over the course of, you know, whatever that is, a four-month tour. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's stuff that's interesting about that solo to me. What I heard... I've, lis- I've listened to that solo, I mean, thousands of times probably at this point.
1: <laughs> I heard a strong, like, swing connection that I might not have noticed hmm. before, like a lot of Gene Krupa kind of s- stuff. Yeah.
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's just sort of that that syncopated... I mean it's either you know, I think of the tune as one, two, three, four, so those would be sixteenth notes. But you could also think of it double time, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and they'd be eighth notes. But it is sort yeah, syncopated, you know, I mean that comes from like nineteen twenties style drumming really. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 sort of goes back to like parade style drumming in New Orleans that drummers like um well, definitely Gene Krupa and and earlier drummers like Zootie Singleton and people like that were were playing. You know, it's and it's sort of a, you know, th- I don't know how much Neil, I don't really hear those eighth notes as having any sort of swing in them, but maybe there's a touch. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you hear that, or is it more in the syncopated nature?
1: Yeah, of, more just the nature, the, the kick drum yeah. on all four and and the the toms over top, and then the cowbells. Mm-hmm. It just it sounded like early swing music to me in a way.
0: Yeah. Well, he grew up listening to, you know, his dad was into the big band. So he grew up hearing Gene Krupa and, and uh, Ellington and Basie and, and bands like that. So he, he must have had that. I mean, he talked about that at times in interviews, but I think he definitely had a connection to that and had some of that sort of phrasing in his ears.
1: Let's go on to the next tune, The Weapon. Yeah. So this is off of Signals. Yeah, 1982. And you've highlighted the first minute and then from 540 to the end. So let's start at the beginning. then jumping to 540. Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services as well as drum lessons stop by their storefront at 308 chestnut street in nashville tennessee or call 615-383-8343 or go online at forksdrumcloset.com i have to admit i do not know
0: this record at all signals oh no. it's brilliant it's really brilliant it, it's it's a it's an amazing record because moving pictures was so it moving pictures was a huge breakthrough for them um and it was one of those records that would be hard for any band to follow up and signals is just like, okay, here's the next step for us. You know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like, it doesn't sound like they were intimidated by the idea that they just had this huge record. They just made the record they wanted to make. And it's very different. uh, And it doesn't, I don't feel like they're trying to capture anything. They're not thinking like, Oh, we need to capture the magic of the last one. They just, they just made a record and it's, and it's brilliant. Um, but I do think that this is where you start to get into them writing more concise tunes, more sort of, I guess, more melodic, prettier melodies, uh, more emphasis on writing um, songs that the vocal melody maybe would have been more of a priority than, than other things. Um, This tune is interesting because I think this is the first time you find a Rush song where you have a four-on-the-floor bass drum throughout the entire tune. Mm. And there's some other ones later on, but this is when they were starting to listen to a lot of new wave. Um, And Neil talked about being into bands like Japan. Uh, Japan, um, I forget the name of the drummer, great drummer, great band, with a lot of like, there's a dance influence, but also this sort of like um a lot of tom-tom rhythms a lot of like sort of you know potentially uh maybe influenced by west african music sort of grooves um and they were listening to Ultravox and uh obviously the, there's a big influence of the police which dates back previous records from this even but um uh so it's four on the floor bass room but It almost sounds like, okay, let's figure out a way to do four on the floor bass drum and everything that that brings to a tune. But let's also combine it with a really offbeat, syncopated, weird rhythm Mm -hmm. on top of it. So he starts out playing on the hi-hat and playing a part. It sounds a little improvised, but it's actually groups of three. Um, that sort of repeat. And then when they get into the main verse groove, that's a really awkward sounding beat. And the way that he plays it is he actually plays with his left hand on the hi-hat and his right hand on the snare drum. So he's like, "Mm um, sorry, I should do this. And um, apparently, that rhythm came from Getty Lee's original demo, where he wrote it at home and actually used a Roland 808 drum machine, of all things, to program this goofy rhythm we'll with hear. this four-on-the-floor pulse, but then this crazy syncopated thing on top. And Neil basically had to replicate that, because they kind of all felt that it just worked for the tune. And so that's where that beat came from and then the outro i i I thought it'd be interesting to listen to that because it's just kind of an interesting thing and the four and the four pulse continues and then he's playing these really interesting sort of tom maybe influenced by the band japan um but the sort of really syncopated tom rhythms going up and down the eight tom toms that he had at the time and um uh very over the bar line kind of stuff doesn't fit into a nice square like two bar phrase four bar phrase kind of thing it's really kind of those things just sort of land wherever they land and i just think it's it's also one of the first examples maybe of him playing like that where he's not just hitting a bunch of downbeats fill 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 fill, downbeat fill 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 fill, downbeat it kind of goes over the uh the, the the four bar or two bar structure so uh I think that is interesting, too. Also, the sound of the drums on this is fantastic. This is when he first got the uh, the Tama Artstar prototypes, which were a thinner shell than he'd been using before. It was a floor, four-ply shell um, of birch. And the drums just sound more open than you you know, to to my ears anyway, they kind of bloom more. Each tom-tom blooms more. Also, going back to the intro, it starts with just him. And if anybody wants to know what a 14 by 24 inch bass drum sounds like, this is like, this is exactly what that bass drum sounds like. This is like, you know, you're not here. It's not heavily processed. It just sounds like a 14 by 24 in a room played hard, you know, with like, you know, a hole in the front head. Um, that's just, you know, it's it's like the perfect example of what does that drum sound like? What does that size sound like? All
1: right, next up, uh, um, Red now, Lenses. Be- before
0: one? we start, the reason that I wanted to, uh, to to, the reason I picked this song is because I think that this may be the hardest thing that Neil ever played. If we're just talking about pure, not even technical skill, but coordination um, around the kit, you know, people talk about uh, uh, La Via Strangiotto or YYZ or tunes like that as being like, oh, these are like biggest drumming challenges. Yeah, those those are hard tunes. But seriously, try to play Red Lenses. I dare you. And when I say that, you have to play it on Neil's kit. (laughs) <laughs> neil's, on neil's exact setup so he this is from 84 Graysoner pressure record this is when he added the back kit he called it the satellite kit so behind him he added a second kit the bass drum snare drum ride hi-hat cymbals and four at the time four simmons toms so he'd turn around and he'd have this whole other kit behind him but what was cool about this setup is that he could still hit a lot of the other stuff in his front kit. It just was on opposite sides. So instead of the concert toms being up here and the ride cymbal being over here, he turns around, he's on the back kit, and now there's concert toms up to his right. And there's a second ride cymbal and Chinese cymbal to his left. So he utilizes all of this so this is this is basically the pattern that happens in I don't know if you'd say it's the chorus of the tune or the B section of the tune but let's listen to it. Okay. I see rain.
1: them isn't complicated so what makes it no, the most challenging no, thing
0: d- okay it's you have to understand his setup now um i can show you on my ipad i can either show you a picture of this or i can do a screen share um what would you prefer
1: uh, just show me the picture let's go that All way right.
0: first so this is from a little bit later this is this is a picture from 1990 on the presto tour um, trying to center this as best I can. Mm-hmm. So this is this is one of the best overhead shots showing Neil is sitting at the front of the kit. Um, the back kit is there. You can see he's kind of obscuring the uh, the second bass drum. The little he had an eighteen-inch bass drum back there, mm-hmm. but you can see the Simmons toms. You can see the hi-hat, and you can also see how he's right next to the gong bass drum here. Yep. He's got the uh, the smaller tom-toms above the, uh, the the marimba there. So also, if you notice, it's hard to see here, but at the front of the kit, um, there's a splash symbol and the, the cowbells are over here. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting facing the, the electronic kit, the cowbells are practically behind you mm-hmm. and then also on your right you've got these little tom-toms. So when he plays that rhythm, he plays the first part of the rhythm on the gong bass drum and the low tom on the uh, on the electronic kit boom, boom, and then he plays some notes on the snare. Now one thing to point out, he turns the, as, as if this wasn't hard enough, he's turning the snares on and off on the back kit. So he's got the snares on for the verse when he's playing a straight ahead sort of rock beat there at the beginning and then he turns them off for this B section mm. and then turns them back on before the rock beat comes back in. I'm not even sure like how I mean he has like a second to turn them on. So <laughs> so he plays he plays some notes on the snare and then he hits two notes on the highest concert tom which is on his it's on his right now over on this side. Okay, so imagine that he's playing do do gak. So this is the toms, the snare, and then the concert tom up here. This is the beginning. Do-do do do on a tom. On a on a on a Simmons tom. Okay, that's the first half. Then the second half, um the the low toms again, do-do gak. Same rhythm on the snare. But then he basically turns almost completely around to play those cowbells, do, do, ga, ga, do, 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 whatever it is <laughs> on the cowbells, and then the next two notes after the cowbells is the second concert tom, which is like basically <laughs> over here, and then he hits some he hits three notes on the the highest Simmons tom again. So again, the, to to actually visualize it, the second half of that rhythm. Do, do, Um, (laughs) or, or I think it's with the left hand, but yeah, it's, it's, it requires (laughs) like such an incredible stretch and I guess it helps to understand physically Neil's stature. Neil was extremely tall. Neil was about, um, at least six, four, maybe a little taller. Um when I when I met him I mean he just towered over me. He's a very tall guy. And I think he had a really long reach mm. on his kit where he could you know make these ridiculous <laughs> stretches. Um oh also when he hits the the 8-inch concert tom in the second half of that he's also hitting a left foot trigger an electronic sound. Which triggers a Simmons clap track, uh, Mm. clap trap, which is a a sort of clap sound, like a kind of sound that you hear a lot actually, starting in uh, um, that was something, a device he utilized a lot um, in Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, Hold Your Fire. You hear this clap sound. Anytime you hear that, that's a left foot trigger. He had one on the back kit and he had one on the main kit, right to the left of his hi hat pedal. And he would. I, I'm going to talk about this in in the next tune, actually. In Lock and Key, you hear him taking his left foot off the hi hat and hitting this this trigger to make the clap sound. So while he's doing all of that and reaching over to hit this concert tom, he hits the left foot trigger, and I mean, then that's so and bad then, for your spine. <laughs> yeah, I know. So unfortunately, there's really no good video of him playing this tune. They only played it on the Grace Under Pressure tour and there is a professionally shot video from that tour but they didn't include the tune red lenses which is Mm. tragic um but there is a bootleg from osaka from um let's see uh november 21st 1984 if you search on youtube red lenses uh i think if you just search for red lenses you'll you'll find it it'll be one of the first things that comes up it's a really fuzzy shaky camcorder footage of them playing this tune, but you can see him, it does actually focus on him a bit during this section of the tune, and you can see him stretching (laughs) like that, but he still, I mean, he pulls it off, it is completely in the pocket, like there's, if you listen to the recording, he's playing that live on the recording, and there's no Nothing's off the grid. I mean, he's able to to play that super consistently. And every bootleg I've heard of them doing this tune, he just plays that part like it's nothing. He plays it as though he's just playing, you know, like on an octopad or something, where he doesn't have to stretch at all. Um, so not only did he have that sort of coordination and independence, but a, a really great sense of time by this point where everything is right on the grid and everything is just extremely consistent um all the dynamics there's no like note that's like a little too soft because he's reaching so so far to to hit it you know what i mean <laughs> so i really think this is one of the most challenging things that he ever wrote and played ever in in the entire you know whatever however many studio records 15 or whatever there are I, I, I challenge you to find something trickier to play than this. <laughs> All right.
1: You mentioned bef- before it. we started recording that you got to meet him. Did you happen to get yeah. to get behind his
0: kit? No, no. It wasn't at a concert. Well, it was a concert, but not one he was playing at. It was one of the Buddy Rich uh, Memorial Scholarship concerts in New oh, okay. York. There was one in 94 um, that he gave a speech at, uh, but he didn't play drum kit. Um, he didn't play with the band. Um, he did play percussion um, on a tune uh, on the encore. They, they did uh, pick up the pieces um, and, uh, and he played some like congas and stuff, but he didn't, he didn't play kit with the, with the band at this one, but he was giving a speech and I got to go because I was studying with John Riley at the time at William Patterson. And I was hanging with John at the concert and before, before the concert, John basically said, Hey, let's go backstage and say hi to the cats. And I was like, okay so he just there was no security there was nobody there were no backstage passes we just walked backstage and a you know, was there and omar hakim and all these heavyweights and 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 neil was there and i really wanted to meet him and um at first i did the absolute wrong thing i went up to him and started sort of gushing and he was just you know anybody who knows about neil knows he was not receptive to gushy fan advances. Mm. Uh, but then at a later point, I, I approached him again and started asking him questions about um, his experiences traveling, um, particularly in Africa, because I was kind of interested in that at the time. And he was actually really, really friendly and really chatty. And we had a, a about a 15-minute conversation. Um, and we actually ended up talking about drumming and talking about Rush and stuff that they were doing. Um, but it kind of led to that more organically. Um, but I also did get this, I got, he signed my counterpart CD, Oh, nice! (laughs) which was their, their current, their current release at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun to get to meet him and really, really cool to get to, to, to talk to him. Very cool.
1: Let's move on to the next tune lock and key.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, okay, so you've highlighted the beginning to the f- the first fifty seconds, and then the final.
0: The beginning, I I I put just because. Well, two things: the the um the intro fill. There's a there's a synth intro, and the fill that he plays to bring in the tune is just completely ridiculous. And then when he starts playing the intro on the kit, you'll hear him play some fills on the toms, and check out the tuning of the the first tom that you hear the first tom that he plays like the the first fill on is his eight by 12 inch rack tom and just check out how incredibly high it's tuned and other than like max roach and kenny washington and greg hutchinson guys like that like tell me who tunes a 12 inch tom this high besides neil it's a very very unique thing that he does
1: all right here's the first 50 seconds and then jumping
0: and to then, Yeah, so this there's two things to check out in this at the end of the tune. There's like a little sort of breakdown before the outro. And this is where you can hear him going off of the left foot hi-hat to play this sort of left foot trigger playing the clap sound. And then after that we go into there's a brief sort of recapit- recapitulation of the chorus uh without vocals and then we go back to the intro but instead of it just being a synth intro he actually plays a solo over the intro which is really cool it's sort of a drum solo within a tune with the with the band sort of accompanying his solo and it's interesting because it's all all of the hits that he's playing around again this maybe you'll hear this as almost slightly jazz influenced everything is off beats all the hits are off beats it's it's you know there aren't there aren't like strong downbeat hits, and everything is orchestrated towards those offbeats. So, check that out. All right, here we go.
1: also a king of the fade out throwing so a little something in there for you <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's true yeah there are a lot of tunes with fade outs that uh they're they it's actually kind of fun to um if you put that like a tune like that into a daw and increase the volume at the fade out so that you can actually hear what they're doing at the fade outs there, there's sometimes some really cool stuff at the fade outs of rush tunes i never thought to do that it's a great idea well if you have the time
1: <laughs> <laughs> this this right away was like that's the sound that i remember rush capturing mm. my ear just so mm. clean and, and precise yeah this yeah drum sound yeah the, the tuning is something i never really thought about either it's really up there i mean it's
0: yeah it there. is it is and in that solo outro the highest tom you hear is the 12 and it's tuned you know definitely in a 10-inch tom range, what most people would consider a 10-inch tom range, maybe even higher. Um, I mean, that would almost be high for a 10 mm-hmm. um, by today's standards or for anybody's standards. Um, and and I, I think it's really interesting because it's it's similar to the, the sort of John Bonham concept of tuning, of taking big drums and tuning them higher. And that, that actually projects and not... Even projects, but it sits in the band mix better than lower, smaller toms tuned lower. Um, which, you know, Steve Gadd and Dave Weckle, uh, Vinny, guys like that pioneered, Steve Jordan as well pioneered small toms tuned low in kind of a fusion setting. But Rush is louder, rock is louder than most fusion. Mm-hmm. You know, most rock, I mean, Rush are, are, are loud. And Neil hits hard. He hit very hard. And bigger drums tuned higher sit in the mix, to my ears, better than smaller drums tuned lower in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, there are exceptions to that. Like Danny Carey plays very little toms. He's using an 8 and a 10 as his rack toms um, for a long time. And and he figured out a way to make them work, although he was using really – I remember – seeing in Modern Drummer that he had super, super thick shells for the for the eight and the ten to to give them the sort of power to project mm-hmm. and sit in the mix in that way. Um, but yeah, that was that was a thing that I've I've always loved about Neil is the tuning of the Toms and the way that they I mean he hit really hard and the way that that combination um, it's unusual to go to a rock concert and be able to hear every single thing the drummer was doing articulated very, very cleanly through in, in, ba- in a balance mixed with loud guitars and loud bass. But I always heard that at Rush concerts. Um, it's a good time actually to bring up out of the many, many, many times that I saw them. Um, I remember going to see them in uh april of 94 at the meadowlands in new jersey and on the on the counterparts tour and i'd seen them a couple of times on that tour already and i kind of got last minute tickets uh to see him at the meadowlands and i happened to get tickets they were considered probably pretty bad seats but um if you think about an arena if this was the stage my iphone was the stage and like you know the that the seats go back like this and sort of around. Um, I had a seat on Alex's side, right on the side of the stage, basically, and there weren't really a lot of people taking up the seats here, so I moved kind of even closer and kind of further around to the back. So I had a view, basically, of Neil kind of from the side like mm. this and just a little bit above, and I was really close, and I was under the PA system. So I could actually hear his sound on stage. I was actually hearing the acoustic drum sound as well as the PA. Mm -hmm. And being that close to him, I could not believe how hard he hit. Um, Virtually every snare drum backbeat, he was bringing the stick back. It's like the end of the stick is beyond his head. Like it's Mm -hmm. this far back every single one for two hours. And every one of those Tom fills, everything was articulated because he was really hitting hard. He was a really, really powerful drummer. And that's not to say that loud drummers are better or hitting hard is the answer, but in a band like that, and in a setting like that, it really, really worked. It really led to an incredibly powerful sound an incredible amount of energy and forward motion and the music, I think, because of the the power that he was putting into every note and the commitment he was putting into every note, and you could hear when you were that close, you could hear the acoustic sound of the drums and the air that they were moving even above the p a system and that was really influential to me. I never played rock quite that hard; I never had the the stamina to do it the way that he did, really, but um it was still very a, a powerful moment to see that up close, to witness mm. that. Other people said that who got to see him, you know, like people who got to stand right next to him while he was playing said, "Like I cannot believe how powerful a drummer he he was." Was he
1: playing Tama or Ludwig at this point?
0: That was Ludwig. Yeah, yeah. That was um, he switched to Ludwig. Actually, the thing we just heard, "Lock and Key," he switched to Ludwig right before the "Hold Your Fire" album. And the sound really changed a lot. Mm-hmm. It got brighter. His his sound got brighter. Um, the it's sort of brighter and woodier at the same time. It's sort of hard to explain. But the the Ludwig's were pretty. They were they were maple and poplar. They were pretty thick shells. Even though they were a it was a four ply shell. It was four really thick plies. So they were kind of resonant, but they were also they were strong. You know, it was not probably not unlike the Yamaha Maple custom sound, you know, Maple customs were thick maple shells. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was just a particular vibe and, you know, for Neil clear heads, um, double ply heads, like clear emperors usually. Um, and again, hitting the drums very hard. That's where that sound comes from. Um, And the next tune actually is, is um, a war paint. This is for Presto. This is, this one's really interesting to me. This is, this is, to me, this isn't a particularly challenging part, but I think this is one of his most brilliant drum parts beginning to end. There's so much going on in this tune. Um, and one, one thing to notice is, um, this is one of those with a verse one and a verse two that are, it's it's actually the exact same part, right? But in verse one, he does it playing the hi-hat and the high toms, the three, the six, eight and 10 inch toms up above his hi-hat. And then in verse two, he plays the exact same rhythm, but on the ride cymbal and on the two lowest toms, but it's virtually the same part. Mm. And it's so cool that he's like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna come up with a part and I'm gonna come up with two completely different ways to use it. It's the same rhythms and the same voicing, but different aspect, different voices of the kid, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then it's there's also a, a chorus where it goes into halftime and he plays really interesting fills in chorus one, chorus two that are I think him trying to play jazz fills. Like I think he had it in mind like this section's open. I'm going to try to play some sort of jazzy influence fills. And they really are. They're kind of interesting for him. They're th- Both choruses have pretty unique fills that um, I think you'll recognize as kind of having some relationship to jazz language. In fact, actually, at one point, he plays the uh, the Roy Haynes, did it and did it and did it, Phil. Really? Did it and did it. Rhythm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then when he's not doing that, the other sections of the tune have this really kind of mundane, like, like just basic sort of Ramones, like punk rock beat, just like, so all of that stuff's happening. It's really crazy. And then there's a, after the second chorus, we'll keep listening into the third verse. He plays these amazing Keith Moon inspired fills. So there's so much going on in this tune. And this is another one I think is probably overlooked by most Rush or most Neil fans, but I think there's so much stuff going on in this tune that's interesting for drummers. All right. Let's start from the beginning.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. I've listened to that song, I don't know, a thousand times in my lifetime, but yeah. never with that kind of scrutiny. There's so much happening.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's like, it, it, there's, <laughs> there really is. It's not just one, it's not like Red Lenses where there's that one beat that we talk about. Um, there's so many different things happening that it's really kind of chock full of interesting drum stuff. And and it's a great song, too. Um, there's a fantastic guitar solo. Um, you know great melody and but there's so just so much thought put in you know just the idea of like coming up with that verse pattern and then reversing it on the second verse and playing the exact same pattern but on a completely different part of the kit mm-hmm. um i just think is a really cool way of you know developing a tune and um you know, putting putting thought into a tune, and and you know he was very everything was composed. Everything like this was was thought out, and you know he'd conceptualize. Okay, I'm going to do this and this, and how am I going to do this? And I'm going to get there. This, and there are other musicians that you know, there 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 jazz musicians or other improvising musicians that can come to these sort of conclusions and come up with these kind of parts on the fly. And that's that's cool too, you know. It it's it's possible to do to do both. And I think that as a there there are certain songs that I play as a jazz musician where I I try to improvise sometimes with this kind of logic, mm-hmm. you know, where you're playing, I don't know, I guess like soloing over the form of a standard and trying to come up with a development on the spot and trying to find, okay, here's a rhythm. I'm going to maybe base the solo around this rhythm and then for the bridge, I'm going to do something different, but then maybe go back to this rhythm, but orchestrate it differently. You know, I, I tend to improvise. um, Not all the time. Sometimes I just let whatever come out, comes out, come out. But other times I try to develop while I'm improvising. I try to have that same sort of sense of development over the course of a solo. And you know it's a similar approach maybe in in a way and maybe for me it comes from my love of the way that the way that Neil orchestrated these sort of songs
1: well we've come to the last tune animate animate
0: so this ties into what i was saying about seeing neil in 94 because this record i think is the only record where his live sound was really captured in the studio and i think this would be the closest that you would find to like if you were standing in front of the guy in a room listening to him play drums this is the closest you'd have to that experience and you hear it in the intro particularly so let's listen to that first all right there's the intro
1: Sound that is such 90s to me. It sounds like it
0: is. It is Soundgarden or Van Halen of that time period. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of that stuff was 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 inspired and informed by Nevermind. Mm. You know, you know, Nirvana had hit so big in '91, and you know, this was recorded just you know a couple years after that. And I think that that super upfront drum sound, super thick drum sound, and big guitars but everything kind of having its own space stuff not really sharing sonic space every instrument having its own sort of lane in the 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 sonics uh, i think was a big influence on a lot of bands at that time and certainly on rush at the time um i also uh, wanted to wanted to talk about the middle section of the tune where it's this sort of like very pearl jam sound garden-y infl- Influenced feel, this sort of Seattle kind of influenced sound. And then it goes into something completely different where Neil is now in this breakdown. He's playing more of a sort of African influence pattern on the toms, but very sparse with a left foot triggering a tambourine sound. Mm. And um, let's just listen to it. But this also leads into, I know we're getting off the topic of drumming, but I personally think this is one of the greatest Alex Lifeson solos. This solo like, just makes me shiver. I think it is such a great solo. Um, so let's listen to that section. I think I gave you the timing through the guitar solo.
1: Yep, starting at 310. here we go
0: (laughs) yeah all right we need we need something to lead us back into the chorus i know what to do
1: (laughs) i'll hit everything (laughs)
0: brilliant brilliant yeah yeah right um but yeah i love that section i i you know after the guitar solo and they're neil's just playing a straight ahead beat i feel like that's what they would sound like if you heard them in a room you Mm -hmm. know like nothing fancy just like here's three guys playing a rock rock tune and i and i love that about about this tune um and i i I love that he keeps the 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 left foot on the tambourine thing going through the guitar solo Mm -hmm. that sort of ties that sort of west african ish section um into the guitar solo it's a completely different sort of thing but he keeps it consistent he keeps he ties the two sections together, I think, by keeping the the, the tambourine thing consistent. Yeah. Um, also, I think maybe the thing that Getty's playing under that sparse tom-tom beat is maybe a bit related to the kind of things Adam Clayton might have played with uh, with U2, mm. that sort of rhythmic 16th note bass sort of feeling with, with accents is a little bit like the kind of things... I, I it, Somehow, it just reminds me of that. I don't know if that's just anything that they had listened to at the time, but... Yeah, there's there's interesting influences on this. I love that he left space for the bass to become the rhythm. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's really right. Cool. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He's Neil is kind of playing accompaniment to the bass, taking over the groove. That's that's a very good point. I didn't think of that.
1: Man, yeah. what a cool record.
0: Yeah, I, I mm-hmm.
1: um, we have to end it now, but man, yeah, we've got a lot to listen to. And this is an era of <laughs> records. I mean, I know Counterparts, I know Presto those three before before that i really don't know so i can't believe i've got so much music to listen to
0: <laughs> yeah we didn't we didn't do anything on power windows but that's an amazing record too is fantastic writing on that record there's some really really lovely tunes and and amazing drumming and a really again one of his best drum sounds i think that's actually his best recorded drum sound of the tama era um drums are, they're just very upfront and well-recorded and they, they have, again, a, a great place in the mix you can really hear a lot of what he's doing, but he's also utilizing a lot of electronics. There's a lot of um, creative uses of, you know, sampling, you triggering sort of, you know, he's, this is when he started sampling uh, uh, African drums and tabla and things like that mm-hmm. and utilizing them in prog rock beats, which is, I mean, that's just cool very cool well everyone yeah.
1: uh get yourself a playlist of neil go for a jog
0: <laughs> yeah it's good it's it's good energy for uh it's good energy music for for running i don't run do any tempos i i as a drummer i can keep my tempo no matter what the music is, the tempo of the music is which is kind of what we have to do as drummers anyway right that's mm-hmm. kind of our job is we keep going steadily and other people are doing whatever they're doing <laughs> so uh yeah but but it's uh, you know other than the tempos i think it's great running music just because of the energy of, of it
1: right on well thanks so much so we'll see you yeah. in person here with tom and dave in a future oh, I can't episode wait. here so. i can't wait Yeah, <laughs> thank you teaser. so much
0: mike thank you so much for having me it's such an honor to be on on the the podcast i'm such a big fan and it's nice to get to do this with you right on see you soon thanks All right. Thanks.
1: And that is it for this week's episode. If you like the show, please head over to iTunes or Spotify or YouTube. Make sure you're subscribing to our YouTube channel. Give us a five-star rating. If you don't mind typing some words in to give us a review, that will help spread the word. It does actually make the show rank higher if someone searches for drums or drum podcasts or anything like that. Anyway, thanks again for
0: your support and we will see you next week.